0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. What a joy that we get to share in as 10 couples tie the knot and receive God's good gift of marriage. But I know that this can also be a season of great sadness. You know, many of us want to be happy for our friends, and we are. But deep down inside, every wedding we attend reminds us of our loneliness. And as more people in our church get married, it's easy for some of us to feel left behind. To even feel just a little bit left out. There can be a deep sense in which we might feel not so much part of this church family anymore. You see, we might think to ourselves, well, well, I guess now church is for married people. I guess now church is for families. So what about me? I mean, what if I don't get married? What if I don't have a family of my own? What place do I have in this church? Do I truly belong? You know, Paul writes 1 Timothy to teach us how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And today he wants us to see that the church is God's family for the most vulnerable. The church is God's family for the most vulnerable. You see, we are a family for all without a family. We are a family for you and me. So point number one, here it is. God's family is our family. God's family is our family. You know, Last year, I was speaking with a good friend of mine from another church, and she lamented to me that she hardly knew any of the men from her church. In fact, this is what she said, I feel a lot closer to my male colleagues at work than my Christian brothers at church. Now, on one level, I get it, right? I can understand why men and women are careful with how we relate to one another. We don't want to mislead or hurt each other. So, what do we do? The easiest thing to do? We avoid each other altogether. But, what kind of family is it where brothers and sisters can't have genuine, deep, and godly relationships? I wonder, are we actually dishonoring each other by reducing the other person to a potential romantic partner? You see, friends, if we segregate men from women, brothers from sisters, we're actually depriving ourselves of godly relationships with half of God's family. Brothers or sisters for whom Christ died. I mean, wouldn't it be tragic if we functionally disowned all our brothers or all our sisters purely out of fear? No, we need men and women to be brothers and sisters. That's what we find here in verses 1 and 2. God's family is our family, old and young, men and women. And in this family, we must treat each other with honor. Treat each other with honor. We're not going to go through every single relationship that is set up in these two verses, but I just want to zero in on one thing right now. Brothers, did you notice how we're to treat younger sisters in Christ? Three words right there, with all purity. Now, let me be honest, right? Given the average age of people in our church and the closeness of our relationships, I'm willing to say that Cross and crown may actually be one of the best places in Melbourne to find a husband or wife. It's not a bad thing, right? It's not a bad... Look, if you end up marrying someone from our church, I suspect you could do a lot worse. <laughs> but I want you to remember... That whilst you're dating, you are still unmarried before God. And so if you're dating, brothers, treat your girlfriend as you would your sister. With honor, respect, and purity. Jesus didn't save her only for you to sin against her. If you cross physical boundaries, you are not loving her. You are loving yourself at her expense. And if you're not in a relationship and you're keen to pursue one with a sister in Christ here at church, can I be clear? Like, ask her out, but whatever her answer is, respect it. Respect her. Honour her. And when you stop and think about it, what a contrast to the casual, no commitment, hook-up, break-up culture that causes nothing but hurt. No, God's family is our family. And he's calling us to treat each other with honor. Secondly, God's family ref- our family reflects God's family. Our family reflects God's family. In, in 1981, my, my grandfather passed away. I, I never met him. And at that time, my dad was just 27 years old. And my grandmother, my, my papa, she was 51 at the time. And when you think about it, what a tragedy to be widowed at such a young age. At that time, my grandma, she was living in Malaysia, and, but all three of her sons had already moved to Melbourne. So she decided to move here as well. And starting in his late 20s, and for the next 30 years, my dad cared for his mother. He managed her money, he bought her a house, and he took her into our home. You see, I grew up being cared for by my grandmother, and when I saw how my dad cared for her, I saw something truly special, something otherworldly. I saw something of the gospel. You see, friends, how we treat our family reflects how we treat God's family. And how we treat God's family reflects how we treat God. Just look at verses 3 and 4. Paul wants the church to support widows who are genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, like my grandmother, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family. First, and then to to repay their parents. Why? For this pleases God. My parents' favorite verse, verse in the Bible. You see, throughout this letter, Paul is calling us to show godliness within God's family. He's been showing us, just as he did in verses 1 and 2, that God's family is our family. And yet, our own families still matter. Our own families are radically important. Godliness starts in the home. And our families are the training ground of godliness. See, it's in our families that godliness is cultivated worked out and then spills over into our relationships in God's family. How we treat our family reflects how we treat God's family. And in verse 4, it's not just about how we treat any member of our family, not just our favorite member of our family, but in particular, how we treat our aging parents. How we treat our aging parents. Now, I get it for some of us, that's a pretty scary thought. It's a pretty terrifying thought, because when we reflect on how we treat our parents, it's probably very different from how we treat our church. I suspect that we tend to be far kinder to our church family than we are to our own families. What a challenge for many of us to honor our parents, because how we treat them reflects how we treat God. Now let me be clear, this isn't talking about how we love our parents while they're financially and physically independent like many of them are today. This is about how we, how we care for them when they're older, when they're physically frailer and financially vulnerable. You see, it's in that place of need that God calls us to honour them, to support them and care for them and provide for them. Just like they once supported, cared for and provided for us. That's what we do in God's family. That's what Christians do. We care for our vulnerable, and we care for our needy. I've calculated, I did this yesterday, it was a terrifying calculation, but by the end of this year, I will have spent at least 84 hours with seven engaged couples in pre-marriage counseling, potentially more to come. And what's been fascinating is... How for almost every couple, so much of our time is spent talking not about them, but about their parents. Not just about how their parents raised them in the past, but how they might care for their parents in the future. What are their parents, let's face it, often unspoken expectations? Will they one day move in with their children? Who will foot the bill for their care? What impact will caring for them have on a marriage? You see, whether we're married, engaged, or single, all of us need to ask these questions. While not all of us will be parents, all of us have parents. So I want to give you five principles, five principles for caring for our aging parents. They're principles, they're not rules. Number one, if you are married your first responsibility is to your spouse. However you might care for your aging parents, your relationship with your husband or wife must always come first. Number two, whether or not you are married, you have a responsibility to your aging parents. How you treat them is a reflection of how you treat God. And your marriage can't be an excuse to neglect them. And your spouse can't use your marriage to stop you caring for them. Number three, if both your parents are financially and physically independent, they are firstly responsible for one another. See, just as God has given you to your husband or wife, He's given your parents to each other. And God is calling them to primarily care for each other, not you. Number four, if one of your parents is alone, but financially and physically independent, honor them with your time and care. Unlike the widows in Ephesus, your parent can support themselves. But what they lack is companionship, care, love, and intimacy. Provide for them in those ways. Number five, If one of your parents is alone and financially or physically in need, honour them with your time, care, and money. You see, that might mean taking them into your home or or paying for their residence while regularly visiting them. Because, friends, you are all they have at that point. And you honour God by honouring them. You know, late last year... um, The Royal Commission handed down its interim report into aged care. And it describes our society's care for the elderly with one word. One word about how our society cares for the elderly. I wonder if you can guess what it is. Neglect. Neglect. The aged care industry is marked by loss, abandonment, and fear. That's how our world treats the elderly. That's how our society treats the vulnerable. But not so for us in God's family. No, we don't neglect them, we honour them. Because how we treat our family reflects how we treat God's family. And we are a family for the most vulnerable. And I want you to know that when we care for our ageing parents, we cast a vision of God's master plan for this world. We show the world a better way. That's why Paul in verse 8 says, if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see, our treatment of the vulnerable elderly in our church will set us apart from the world. My dad cared for my grandmother as long as he could. But eventually, her health declined so much that against every part of his conscience, and I could see it, it would torture him. My dad placed her in an aged care home. For two years, my dad spent six hours a day, five days a week in that home looking after his mother. That's more than 3,000 hours over two years. Reading to her, feeding her, washing her, and putting her to bed. You know, in how he cared for her, I saw something of the gospel. And so did many of the residents in that aged care home. Often we're embarrassed about our parents, aren't we? But in that moment, I looked at my dad and I was like, not bad, not bad. You see, in how he cared for his family, my dad reflected something of God's family. A family for the most vulnerable. Thirdly, God's family is for all without a family. You know, in that aged care home, I met countless people who weren't as blessed as my grandma. Compared to them, she was truly blessed. There were people who hadn't been visited by friends or family in months. People who were closer to the nursing staff than their own children. You see, these elderly people, they had nothing. And they had no one. Many of them were widows who were genuinely in need. And they're the people that Paul is calling Timothy to care for here in verses 9 and 10. Godly widows with no family of their own. Now I know our church is pretty young. And we're not thinking about parenting widows anytime soon. But our, our day will come. So I want you to imagine for a moment. I want you to imagine for a moment that such a woman exists here in our church. For years, she has been faithful. She has brought up her children in the Lord. She has shown hospitality to non-Christians. She has cared for those in gospel ministry. She has helped the afflicted, the poor, and the needy. And she has devoted herself to every good work. You know, everything that we read about the godly woman back in chapter 2, this sister is. And then one day, as her family are driving home from church, a drunk driver smashes into their car. The woman survives, but her husband and three children are killed on impact. 30 years pass. This woman is now 60 years old. She is all alone. She has no husband to protect her, no child to provide for her. She's desperately vulnerable physically, materially, and financially. And unless someone steps in to provide for her, to save her, she will be out of house and home. You see, for that widow, with no family of her own, God wants the church to be her family. Verse 5 tells us that that this widow has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. You see, she has nothing else. She has no one else. And so she does only what she can do. She casts herself on the mercies of God. And God promises to care for this woman and hear her prayers. It's beautiful, isn't it, what what Leonard read as we open our time together in Psalm 68. That God is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. In James chapter 1, verse 27, true godliness is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. As Christians, we need to remember this, and if you're not a Christian, you need to know this, that God is calling us to care for all without a family, because God himself cares for all without a family. You need to know, and we need to remember, that our care for the vulnerable reflects God's care for us. Because just like the widow, we were spiritually destitute. We had nothing to protect us, provide for us, or pay for us. We were without resources, payment, or the means to save ourselves. And unless someone stepped in to provide for us, unless someone stepped in and intervened to save us, we would have been abandoned, judged, and condemned by God. But the very God who should condemn us, cares for us instead. The God who should cast us out brings us home. He reaches down to save us out of sin and death and He shows us grace. And just like the widow, none of us are able to repay Him. And now, God calls us to extend to the vulnerable that very same grace that He extended to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has adopted us as orphans into his family. And he now calls us to be a family for all who don't have one. For that godly widow who has put her hope in God. You know, in our church family, the reality is we, we just don't have any such widows. But we do have people who don't have a family of their own, at least not here in Melbourne on the ground whether it's the interstate or international student or the unmarried brother or sister in Christ. And if that's you, if you feel like you don't have a family of your own, I want you to know that God's family is for all without a family. God's family is for you. See, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you don't have a family to care for you here in Melbourne, I want you to know that God will care for you. That we will care for you. The truth is, not every widow in Ephesus, there in 1 Timothy, was godly. And not every widow in Ephesus should have been cared for. Because unlike the genuine godly widows who put their hope in God, there are other women who are putting their hope in themselves. Instead of receiving God's gift of the church, they're marrying unbelievers and forsaking their faith in God. Now, when we read verses 11 to 13, it's hard to know exactly what's going on here, but I want to show you that we can tell at least this much. Some younger widows, after their husband die, are, there. you can see it on the screen, drawn away from Christ by desire. That is sexual desire, the desire for companionship, and they want to marry. Now, we know that marriage is God's good gift, so marriage itself can't be a bad thing. Then desiring to marry is a good thing, but Later in verse 14, and we see that in verse 14, sorry, that Paul actually wants these very younger widows to remarry. So the problem isn't with marriage itself. No, there is something about the remarriage here in verse 11 which dishonors God. It's a marriage that leads these widows to renounce their original pledge, to forsake their first faith in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul allows Christian widows to remarry on one condition, as long as it's in the Lord, that is with another believer. So, as best as we can tell, it appears that the young widows here in 1 Timothy, led by sexual desire, are putting their hope in not God, but themselves. They are taking their lives into their own hands, they are turning their backs on God, and they are choosing Contrary to 1 Corinthians 7, to marry outside the Lord, that is, with an unbeliever. Instead of committing themselves to good works like the genuine widows in verse 10, these widows are busying themselves with sin in verse 13. So, Paul writes to Timothy, Don't care for those who turn their backs on God. No, care for those who in the face of great need put their hope in God. Now I know, I know, I want to acknowledge that the issue of marrying a non-Christian is sensitive for many of us here in church. And there are very few of us who are not connected with someone in this situation. You know, my dad married my mum when she wasn't a Christian, so I have somewhat of a personal stake in this matter. But let me ask some questions. How could I form a family with someone whom I know is not in the one family that truly counts. How could I make a lifelong commitment to someone whose life is committed to something other than Jesus? If I really love her, wouldn't I value her relationship with God over her relationship with me? See, the primary problem with these widows isn't even that they're marrying an unbeliever. No, 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 the real problem is that they're not putting their hope in God. Their desire for companionship, their desire for for sex is leading them to choose the world. Choose the world over God and to walk away from Jesus. And so often, aren't aren't we so much like these widows? Putting our hope in God. Well, not God, but ourselves. Friends, be very careful. For if we put our hope not in God but ourselves, we may just renounce our first faith. God wants us to marry within His family because He wants us to stay committed to Him. He wants to protect us from from the world which will, just like for the widows, draw us away from Christ. It's tragic reading the Old Testament. It's like watching a slow motion train wreck of what happens when we marry outside God's family the question for all of us is this, do we put our hope in God? Do we trust that in our vulnerability, we enjoy His invincibility? In our weakness, we see His strength. In our solitude, we experience His presence. You know, I know that some of you here are choosing not to marry at all, rather than marry outside God's family just like the genuine widows, you are putting your hope in God. You are trusting Him to provide for you and not to provide a husband or a wife for you. You are trusting Him to provide for you through the church. And if that's you, my gosh, I thank God for you. I really, really honor you. I mean, what a countercultural commitment, especially in a world which tells us the lie that we'll all be unfulfilled and all alone without marriage. But not so for you. If you're in this family, you will never walk alone. God gives you this family to be your family. And when you put your hope in God, when you trust His plans over ours, you'll be a witness to the world around you. That's why in verse 14, Paul calls the younger widows to remarry, that is, within God's family, or to remain unmarried and put their hope in God because when they do, they'll give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. You see, the world won't be able to find within this family anyone who is abandoned, neglected, or anyone who turns away from the living God. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that all who put their hope in God will find their honor in God. God calls us to care for them. To honour them. To be a family for them. You know, marriage, it's a great gift of God. And we want to celebrate that 10 couples, 20 of our brothers and sisters are enjoying this good gift. And you know what? Over the coming years, I can't wait. I can't wait to celebrate so many more engagements and so many more marriages. If you do marriage prep with me, I'll tell you for 12 hours. Marriage is not the answer to our loneliness. And the families that spring from these marriages, as good as they are, they are actually not our truest and deepest family. No, this, right here, the church is our truest and deepest family. This, right here, is a far greater gift of God. So when the world lies to us and tells us that without marriage, we are all alone, don't you believe a word of it? Put your hope in God. Celebrate this greater gift of the church. Because God's family is a family for the most vulnerable. We're a family for all without a family. We're a family for you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gift of your church as our family. Teach us to be a family for all without a family, so that through our care, we might see a glimpse of your care for us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.